Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Before we get into the interview, however, first, some housekeeping. On Monday of this week, we launched a new telephone hotline at the request of several listeners. The purpose of the hotline is to collect more staffer stories. I know people love them, so now is a chance to both share more and hear more. They could be about anything. Royal screw-ups, lessons learned, something outrageous that you saw in the cloakroom, or the strange story of how you got into politics. The stories can be anonymous or identified. The only requirement is that they be true. So please call in and we will play the best of on the air. The phone number is 888-416-2132. That's 888-416-2132. We also have the phone number posted on our website, staffershow.com. Now, on to the interview. Today, my guest is Chris Liu. I met Chris when we worked together in the White House under President Obama. Chris served as the cabinet secretary at that time. He got to the White House after serving as legislative director and acting chief of staff for then-Senator Obama. Before that, he was a staffer on the House Oversight and Government Affairs Committee. After leaving the White House, Chris was a fellow at the University of Chicago and Georgetown University. Then he returned to federal service as deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor. His high-ranking roles in government has made him one of the most accomplished Chinese-Americans in government history. And today, you can often find him offering observations on the latest developments in government and politics on MSNBC, CNBC, and other cable outlets. In his professional life, Chris serves as a strategic advisor to FiscalNote. I was so pleased to be able to interview Chris. Our conversation was recorded on Monday, March 8th. I hope you enjoy the show. Chris Liu. Welcome to Staffer. Jim, it is such an honor. I am a longtime fan or as long time as one could be on a, <laughs> a relatively new podcast. So thank you for having me. It is fantastic to have you here. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, because you're a listener, you know that I like to start um, where people grew up and a little bit about their family. So tell me, where did you grow up? Despite my knowing you for so many years, I don't know much about uh, you know your upbringing. So I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, so I'm uh, not quite an inside-the-beltway person, but I've essentially have lived in the Washington, D.C. area for uh, my entire life. I am the child of immigrants. My father was an electrical engineer who worked for the federal government. My mother was uh, did accounting and bookkeeping for National Geographic, so it was a pretty typical middle-class uh, upbringing. And so, you know, were they political at all? Or how did you get introduced to politics? So my father was an engineer. And in part, that was because when he came to the country to uh, for college, he didn't have great English skills, and he had good technical skills. And that was a pretty common path for immigrants. But he loved history. He loved politics. Uh, you know, and growing up, I remember we always had a kind of a small little TV set uh, in our kitchen, and we would watch uh, the evening news uh, while we ate dinner. And so um, I actually was born in New Jersey, but moved to Rockville when I was eight. And uh, one of the things my dad did to, because he wanted to do, is we went down to Capitol Hill uh, to go meet, uh, or at least to stop by the office of our hometown congressman. And he actually came out and took a photo with us. And, and that just left a very 
um, del indelible image with me, and that was when I was eight years old. And so um, my father loved reading political biographies. He loved um, watching the evening news and talking about presidential elections. So while he was an engineer, I got that love from him. So you went uh, back to New Jersey to Princeton for your undergraduate days. Did you study politics? Yeah, I was in the Woodrow Wilson School, or whatever they call it now. It was the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs back in the day. I uh, a actually wrote my senior thesis on press coverage of presidential primaries. So I'm one of the people that wrote a thesis that has some relevance later in their life. And uh, during my sophomore year in college, I interned uh, in the U.S. Senate. So that was really kind of my first experience really being in politics. So I have to ask you about the college thesis. Is there anything uh, from that thesis that you can look back on and say, that was prescient or that was really good? Well, you know, the, the theory of, of the, my thesis was press coverage is often not geared towards, you know, the largest primary states or the most important states. It really is based on a lot of different factors, based on the horse race aspects of this, the closeness of the race. Um, the earlier primaries obviously get uh, more coverage. Um, and it, it, it was a powerful way for me to understand at an early age that none of this is on the level. And so much of this is how you shape the perceptions of the press. Uh, and, you know, I think people forget, you know, when, when Bill Clinton uh, in 1992 declared himself the comeback kid in New Hampshire, he actually lost the New Hampshire That's primaries. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so a lot of it is um, – and, and, and that was seen as a remarkable um, uh, political event for him. So a lot of it is not just outright winning primary elections, uh, but it's how you shape your win or loss. Yeah. OK, so after your undergraduate years, you then go to study at Harvard Law and you have some pretty remarkable classmates. Could you well, tell us about uh, who you were in, in school with there? Yeah, you know, I, I always tell people now that if you want to go work in the White House someday, figure out um, who's going to be president in 30 years, 20 years, and go to law school <laughs> with that person. So I have the distinction of being in the actual law school class with Barack Obama. And as a result of that, um, so many of the people in our law school class ended up serving in our administration, people like uh, Mike Froman and Norm Eisen and Julius Janikowski uh, are all friends from law school, uh, all our law school classmates. Uh, you know, and look, we had a great uh, law school class, but it certainly helps when one of your classmates becomes president of the United States. That, that does help. So were you friends? Were you in study groups together? You know, I we were not friends. I didn't, as you can probably tell, uh, I, I did not play basketball with Barack Obama back right. in the day. He, and uh, But I we, we certainly had classes together. Um, he was a well-known figure on campus. He was the first African-American uh, editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Review. And so when he, he was a well-known figure. So we all knew who, who he was. And I think we all knew that, you know, he was destined to do big things. Although back in 1991, when we graduated, I'm not sure anyone could have predicted he would be president. Yeah. Um, okay. So you graduate from law school. You then clerk. And you worked for several years at the prestigious law firm Sidley Austin. Your first job on Capitol Hill, first paying job, is uh, with the Democratic staff of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, which was led at that time, uh, the minority was, by Henry Waxman. How did you get from Sidley Austin 
to that job? So I'd been at Sidley Austin, a big corporate law firm, for a, a bunch of years, and uh, I enjoyed the experience, but I had the passion for me was always public service, and I just couldn't figure out how to break uh, into the hill. And like so many other things in life, it's all about connections. It's about getting your resume from the big pile that comes into the little pile that's actually being considered. And at the time, um, and we will talk about this person a lot, uh, Henry Waxman's chief of staff uh, was a guy named Phil Shalera, who we both know very, very well. Uh, Phil, during his time as a staffer on the Hill, had also run for Congress twice. Uh, during one of his congressional runs, his campaign manager uh, was a guy named John McClain, who was my who had been my best friend since the third grade. And so when I was able to send my resume into Phil and say, hey, John McClain said, you know, I should reach out to you, that took my resume from the big pile to the small pile. Um, at that point, this was 1997. Um, this was right after Bill Clinton had gotten reelected. Uh, the Republicans, not able to defeat Bill Clinton in the elections, decided to conduct more oversight over him, in particular around campaign fundraising uh, from the 96 election. Uh, Phil and Henry Waxman needed a bunch of lawyers who understood uh, how to uh, defend and uh, take depositions, uh, how to do subpoenas, uh, in general, how to do oversight. And so while I, I wasn't um, it wasn't the best fit for me. I had been a litigation attorney, so I knew how to do all of these things. And that was eventually my foot in the door in 1997. Uh, and that began, you know, 20 years of public service. So Henry Waxman and Phil Shalero are both sort of Hall of Famers in their own categories. Um, and Phil is, would certainly be a nominee of mine for Stafford Hall of Fame. Um you, you know, the, the congressional investigation, the oversight investigation is a unique form of investigation. It's not a legal proceeding, but it's also not a regular committee hearing. So talk to us about that process and, and what you learned about that unique form of investigation. Well, as we just started talking about, um, many things are not on the level. Uh, House oversight investigations, congressional oversight investigations are generally not on the level. Um, a lot of it is about theatrics. A lot of it is about posturing by members. Uh, there is a small aspect that is about finding the truth, uh, but that's very little about it, particularly, you know, especially in the environment we're in now, but even more, even, even back in uh, 1997. So look, there is a process by which you uh, request documents and you take depositions and you ask witnesses to give testimony. Uh, but so much of it does not follow the procedures that you would follow in a court. Um, and, you know, there's a huge partisan aspect to it. Um, and so it, it was a challenge, but it was a great way to sort of go from law as you practice it in a court, which tends to be more on the level, to the more political. Was there anything about the way... Um, Congressman Waxman would lead an investigation or guidance that you'd get from Phil that were sort of like hallmarks, just rules of the road that you knew you had to follow? Yeah, you know, I, again, uh, Henry Waxman is such a pivotal figure in my political career, as is Phil Shalero. You know, people forget, I mean, Henry Waxman was 
um, elected in 1974 in the post-Watergate class. I mean, he is responsible for you know many of the major uh, healthcare and environmental uh, pieces of legislation in this country. Um, and from the oversight perspective, he had been uh, relentless in using the powers of congressional investigations. You know, very famously, he called the tobacco executives up in the early 90s uh, and really grilled them. Uh, he did a very similar thing with Major League Baseball and steroids. But in the perspective of um, uh, being in the minority, uh, it was about the search for the truth. I mean, we weren't just there to play partisan games and whatever the Republicans say to, to contradict them. We were trying to find out the truth. And so both Phil and Congressman Waxman asked us as we were doing the investigation, really to find out what happened. But once it was very clear to us that a lot of the, you know, um, the, the, the allegations of improprieties and illegalities that were made by the other side had no basis in fact, uh, we pushed back very, very hard. Um, we got very deep into the details. Um, and look, we were conscious of how the press would cover it, uh, but we were also very mindful of what the facts actually were. It was about you know, doing this in a way that proved a broader message, but doing it with a great sense of integrity as well. Yeah, they are both very much known for that. And, and, and I'll just note, you know, on Capitol Hill, committees and certain offices get reputations for producing great staff. And that is one of those places, you know, working for Henry Waxman and Phil, you know, uh, you learn a lot and you're better for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember I, I spent eight years on the House Oversight Committee and, um, you know, between his oversight staff, his um, his personal office staff, um, his Commerce Committee staff, I don't even think I cracked the top 12 or top 15 in terms of seniority. He And that was one of the huge advantages he had because he was such a great boss and he did such big things. He engendered so much loyalty, which caused a lot of staff to stay with him. And that helps, particularly on the House side, when you have so much turnover, to have that kind of institutional knowledge makes all the difference in your effectiveness. Okay, so now uh, let me flash forward to 2004. Your law school classmate, Barack Obama, is elected to the U.S. Senate from Illinois. You become his legislative director. Was that a fait accompli? Did you guys keep in touch? And then, you know, it, he knew of your of your interest and availability? Or did you apply and have to interview like every other candidate? So, again, so much of my career goes back to Phil Shalero. Um, during the 2004 uh, uh, presidential campaign. Uh, Phil had gotten me a job on the Kerry campaign, and he had let me go over there, basically take a leave of absence. Uh, Kerry lost. I came back to the Hill um, and was trying to figure out what to do next. And one day, Phil came to me and said, Hillary Clinton is looking for a legislative director. Would you be interested in interviewing? And I said, sure. And so I went to go interview for the job, and I was waiting uh, to find out whether I got it. And then Phil came back to me and said, um, you know, hey, didn't you go to law school with Barack Obama? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he's looking for a legislative director, too. So I went to go interview for that job. So I'd love to say I had this whole thing figured out, but I didn't get the Clinton job. And <laughs> and 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 it's it's again, this is 
the, the, the value, the power of luck, but it's also the power of mentors. I mean, this is Phil Shalero who was trying to help me find a role. And mind you, at this point, I had been on the House Oversight Committee for eight years. I had largely done oversight over, although over the previous couple of years, I had started to become more of a policy person. But as you know, Jim, House Oversight has very little legislative authority. So it wasn't like I knew a lot or much about healthcare or foreign policy. Um, but Phil went to vouch for me to get this job. And the person he vouched with was the person who was going to be uh, Barack Obama's chief of staff, a guy named Pete Rouse. And so Phil basically said to Pete, and they were friends because they had worked in Tom Daschle's office, that, look, Chris doesn't have the legislative background, but he can do the job. And based on that recommendation, Pete Rouse took a chance on me. And both of these gentlemen, Phil and Pete, are close friends, they're mentors. And then to actually eventually work with both of them in the West Wing of the White House is phenomenal. And so even now, I am so indebted to them. And whatever my next move is, I'm going to check with Phil and Pete before I do it. Yes. And and for those who are unfamiliar with Pete, even though he has such a profile. Um, he was known when he worked for Senator Daschle, his nickname was the 101st Senator. Yeah. Because I mean, he was so informed and tied in and knowledgeable and trusted. And, and again, this is, you know, um, how luck plays in. You know, when Barack Obama came in in 2004, 2005, Tom Daschle had just been defeated for re-election and his chief of staff, uh, Pete Rouse, was available. And Barack Obama, we were the 99th seniority uh, senator and seniority convinced Pete Rouse to come work for him. And we built this incredible, again, this incredible all-star group of people on our Senate staff. And we were a great staff, but in part, it's because our boss ended up becoming president. So our communications director was Robert Gibbs. Our speechwriter was John Favreau. Our foreign policy advisor was Samantha Bauer. So all the people who we eventually worked in the White House all came from our Senate staff, and we were good, but it helps when your boss becomes president. <laughs> well, and uh, okay, but let's dive into that because he came to the Senate. You know, obviously everyone saw you and others saw enormous potential, but there are a lot of young senators with enormous potential. Um, during your tenure, you were legislative director, but also eventually acting chief of staff. And in that period of time, it you know you must have had conversations with Barack Obama about running for president. How did you formulate a strategy that served that purpose as well as being a freshman senator? You know, making sure he's going to get reelected in Illinois, developing relationships, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, we we could do a whole podcast about those days, but it was interesting. I mean, you know, Barack Obama, you know, had burst into the imagination of the American people when he gave this remarkable speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston. Um, but he had gotten very lucky. I mean, when he got to his general, he had gone through a very difficult uh, primary, Democratic primary that he had won. Then he got to the general election. Um, his opponent had to drop out. Uh, the Illinois Republican Party got Alan Keyes, who wasn't even from Illinois, to run against him. Obama won quite easily. But I think we were also very aware of the fact that um, his political support in Illinois was not that strong. I mean, he really came out of Chicago. And so what we really tried to do um, is a couple of things. One is, from a legislative perspective, 
try to put meat on the bones of what he had talked about in the campaign, in particular what he had talked about in that convention speech in Boston. We really wanted him to come off as a workhorse and not a show horse. So we worked on a lot of kind of just bread and butter issues that were good for the state of Illinois. Um, we really ensured that we had fantastic outreach and constituent services that weren't just based towards Chicago, but that were really based towards the rest of the state. People who are not from Illinois don't know that, you know, when you're in Southern Illinois, you're actually closer to Little Rock than you are to Chicago. When you get outside of Chicago and the Chicago suburbs, it is a very agricultural place. So we were working on a lot of issues like ethanol that were important. You know, at that point, there was the Water Resources Development Act, WERDA. So it was all about locks and dams on the Mississippi River. We were dealing with base closings because this was during the BRAC period of time. We were also there during a time of earmarks. So we were working as hard as we could to get earmarks for the state of Illinois. I mean, it's the kind of thing you would do for any senator, but you were obviously doing it for a high-profile senator. And what we really tried to do is um, to get him just to focus or, you know, everything was focused on being the best possible senator for Illinois. So our media strategy that Gibbs and others uh, mapped out was we did no national press at all for the first year. We did. It was all, you know, Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times. Um, you know, he wasn't doing cable TV this was obviously before you know Facebook and Twitter, but he certainly wasn't doing social media. He was keeping his head down. He was going to committee hearings. And that was frustrating because when you are the most junior senator and you're going to committee hearing, you have to sit there and wait for everyone else to go. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, and so he was really just trying to become the best senator. So we like I'll be honest, the, look, I don't think I thought he was going to be the next LBJ and sit around and be the master of the Senate. But I certainly thought he'd be there for longer than two years before he started running, because that's the plan that Pete Rouse had come up with, was a longer term strategy for him to be an effective senator. So what changed in terms of if it was a longer term strategy, uh, you know, what moved that timeline? So again, luck plays such an important role in all of this. So um, it's a little bit of background. So uh, in his 2004 campaign, um, at his, his um, Senate campaign, uh, he re-released his book, uh, Dreams for My Father, which became a huge bestseller. Um, and then he signed a book contract to do another book. And, you know, he was supposed to get the book done in 2005. It kind of, you know, Barack Obama's a little bit of a procrastinator. Um, it took him a while. And by the time he finally got the book done, in 2006, the fall of 2006, that coincided with the campaigning that he was doing to help take back the Senate. So he was out on the campaign trail for people like Sherrod Brown and Amy Klobuchar and Claire McCaskill. And at the same time that he was doing campaign events for them, he was doing book sellings. And he like it was amazing the confluence of these things. Um, and there was just this energy for something more. And I think, you know, I recall him going to for McCaskill in particular, doing events for her in St. Louis and Kansas City, and a thousand people would show up. And that's not, a thousand people don't show up for Senate candidates. They were showing up for Barack Obama. And I remember, you know, once we took back the Senate, uh, Audacity of Hope, the book that he was selling, became number one or was at the top of the New York Times bestseller. He did uh, the cold open, he was on, he did the cold open to Monday Night Football. He was on Oprah. I mean, his, it was exploding. 
And I remember people telling him, I think that might have been Dick Durbin, the senior senator from Illinois, um, you don't pick the time, the time picks you. And I know from having all of us having experienced um, John Kerry's presidential campaign, um, the staying longer in the Senate doesn't necessarily help you become president. Uh, and, you know, the more votes you take uh, just creates more of a record. And so, you know, he decided a little after two years, he decided to, you know, go down to Springfield, Illinois, and on an absurdly cold day in February of 2007, launch this, you know, long shot bid to become president. Incredible. So we know how that story ends. He's elected in 2008. Uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, in 2009, you take on the role of White House cabinet secretary. Let me ask you first, did you do your homework in advance? Was that, that the role that you wanted? And if not, how did that come to be? So uh, the one step in between, I was the executive director of the transition in 2008. Um, so I was running the transition uh, probably two weeks after Election Day in November of 2008. Uh, I got a phone call um, saying, hey, Rahm Emanuel wants to meet with you to discuss what job you want. Um, and uh, Rahm was going to be the, we all know Rahm, you know Rahm better than I do. Uh, Rahm was going to be the White House Chief of Staff, and I was told by his assistant that I should prepare a list of uh, jobs um, to discuss with Rahm. And I went to go meet with Rahm. I remember it was a, it was a Saturday in November uh, of 2008. Uh, it was the first time I had ever met him. Uh, Rahm was also the nicest he had ever was going to beat me. I mean, he was, as you well know, he you know he can be scary as all get out, but he can also be incredibly yes. charming. Yes, I think that's probably the only conversation I had with Rahm where he didn't curse at me. And you know, and and I get in there, and I'm about to start talking about my list of jobs, and he goes you're going to run the cabinet. And I said, okay. And you know, Jim, what, when Rom tells you to do something, you're not really <laughs> arguing. Sounds like a great job to me. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Sounds like a great job. It wasn't one on my list. And I I said, I, I didn't even know that, that what that job meant. And I asked him what he wanted me to do. And he said very early on, no surprises. I never want to be surprised by something the cabinet is doing. And I never want the cabinet to be surprised by something that the White House is doing. And that was the charge we followed for the first four years when I ran cabinet affairs. It was trying to ensure that the White House and all of the agencies were synced up on a day-to-day -day basis as well as possible. And so for those who aren't entirely familiar with uh, the West Wing components, cabinet affairs is, and your role as cabinet secretary is the liaison between the White House and the cabinet secretaries and, and, their, and the whole agencies. Um, so proactively, you are communicating to them priorities like of the day, of the week, of the month, um, and they were letting you know of their priorities and syncing up. Is that right? Yeah. And, and it was, um, I always describe cabinet affairs a little bit like the grease that keeps the wheels of government going. If our office didn't exist, the wheels of government would still turn. They might just be a little squeakier along the way. And so a lot of it was not only coordinating policy in connection with the policy councils like the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council. It was helping to strategize with your team and Ledge Affairs, uh, the communications folks. A lot of it was the care and feeding to ensure that the cabinet felt like that they were 
heard from advocating for their interests in the West Wing, but as importantly, it was ensuring that they weren't doing things that might be problematic. Um, and, and that's no through no fault of their own, but you know, it was ensuring that, look, if today was healthcare day, it felt like every day was healthcare day in that first term, <laughs> that that was. was the message of the day. And so that's what we were all going to do. And if there was another important announcement from the agencies, we were going to move that aside or coordinate it in a way that we didn't drown each other out. And uh, it was also important just, and again, fast forward to the Trump cabinet, um, it was ensuring that, you know, there weren't ethics issues happening along the way, that they weren't flying, you know, private jets, that they weren't engaging in self-dealing. All of the things that we saw during the Trump administrations in terms of their ethics issues, we didn't have that in the first term of the Obama White House because I knew every single day, every single week what the cabinet was doing. I knew what they were speaking about. I knew their grant announcements. I knew what their travel. And there were many times where I would get a readout of what they're doing and I'd have to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, what exactly is that? Or, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that this day. Um, there were many times where, you know, they would come to me, they were frustrated by something the White House was doing, or as importantly, they were conflicted because they'd have multiple parts of the White House telling them different things. Or the flip is I'd have times where Rom would get on the phone, yell at me to tell me to go yell at the cabinet. And I'd have to, I would never, I never, ever yelled at the cabinet. I would sort of gently say, hey, you know, Rom's not happy about this. Uh, maybe you should not do this. I I always did it in a much softer way than than Rom was going to do it. <laughs> Good. That, that uh, it's sometimes helpful to have that intermediary. Um, I, I used to always analogize. I was like the little kid on the playground uh, with the big kid behind me, and I would order people around, but they weren't lis- they weren't listening to me because of me. They were listening to me because if you're not going to listen to me, Rom's going to be after you pretty fast. It's so funny. I had that exact role when I was managing the frontline program for Rom and had to, you know, get frontline members to do things or or listen to, you know, what he was hoping they'd listen to. And I found that, you know, in many political situations, the chief of staff or the staff member is the heavy. Right? right. Like they're the heavy and the and the principal gets to be the soft touch. And in working with Rom, sometimes it was the opposite. Right. You'd be going to people and be like, no, 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 no. We let, let's handle it this way so that we don't have so Rom doesn't have to get involved. Exactly. <laughs> and, and Rom as a very scary uh, force. And again, a lot of that is overstated and it's a lot. It's 100 percent. It's, it's Absolutely. exaggerated. Absolutely. It's an image he likes to uh, foster. But that works in your favor a lot of times as well. That's right. So, I, I mean, despite the, um, the, the principle of no surprises, sometimes things do mess up. You know, Absolutely. something happens out in a cabinet agency that wasn't supposed to happen, wasn't on the radar screen, and now it's, you know, on the front page of the Washington Post. And the cabinet secretary is the person at the White House who everyone looks at and they say, how did you not know of this? How did this happen? which is kind of an absurd question to put to the cabinet secretary. But nonetheless, what they're really saying is, hey, it's your job. Go fix this. Yeah. Um, When working with front offices of the and the the secretaries themselves, what did you find within those agencies, the difference between sort of the the high performers who can deal with the crisis and, you know, manage their way out of it and those that just couldn't quite move quick enough to remedy things on a on a good timeline? You know, I will say, and I mean this honestly, I mean, I it was the privilege of a lifetime to work with uh, President Obama's first-term cabinet. These were 
remarkably accomplished people, uh, not only in terms of their experience, but in terms of their political skills. So we actually had relatively few instances of real big blowups along the way. And as much of a lot of it was simply miscommunication or lack of knowledge. I mean, I think those of us who work in the White House are privileged because we have access to all kinds of information. We know what the strategy is going to be. We spend months in advance working on what's going to be in the State of the Union address. And I think sometimes we forget the people in the agencies, while they're part of the administration, aren't often privy to all of that information. So when they got crosswise, it was simply because nobody told them. So I was very big on just you know, being a conduit of information. So it wasn't just we did a weekly cabinet report um, based on agency information coming from the agencies, um, but I brought together the chiefs of staff from the agencies every two weeks um, to brief them on what our strategy was. We did morning calls. Um, I had obviously my staff on the phone with them just to try to make sure that as much as possible, the agencies weren't surprised as well, because the more information they had, the better they could sync up. But yeah, there were obviously times where things kind of went crosswise uh, and you're kind of doing a lot of backtracking afterwards to figure out, hey, how did this happen? And oftentimes the frustrating thing with the White House is our solution to these problems was actually worse than what the problem actually was. So early on, there were a couple of times where we were surprised by um, a speech that a cabinet member was about to give. So the solution was, let's get a draft of every speech that is going to be given, not just by the secretaries, but by the deputy, says, assistant, deputy secretaries, assistant secretaries. <laughs> and, and you get so much information, there's no way to process all of that. Or, you know, early on, we were on this weird kick that we were going to try to cut government spending. Not That's not a weird kick, but it was. it all came out of this incident where there was a Washington Post story that suggested the Justice Department had spent $15 on muffins for a conference. Oh, I remember that. And it turned out they weren't $15 muffins. It was the the cost that included the room rentals and all the equipment and the catering for a conference. And the way it got broken down, it seemed like $15. So as a result of that, we had this initiative where we basically had to cut out all government swag of any kind. That was like pens and all kinds of, and it was just, this was an absurd overreaction by people in the White House. And that was the thing that we were very good at the White House. Something would happen, we would completely overreact and hamstring, handcuff the agencies for a long period of time until like, we sort of forgot about it and went back to the old ways we were doing things. Um, After you left the White House, which was in 2013, early of 2013, you uh, did a couple of fellowships, uh, University of Chicago, Georgetown University, which I want to return to. Um, because after about a year of doing the fellowships, you were recruited back into federal service and became the deputy secretary at the U.S. Department of Labor. How did that come to be? And was the Department of Labor, you know, a- an agency that you had wanted to work at and just finally had the opportunity? No, I mean, again, it, uh, <laughs> I, I knew stunningly little about labor issues when I was nominated. I still know stunningly little right now. Um, when I, um, after the President Obama got reelected in November of 2012, um, he sat down with the senior staff, talked about uh, what people wanted to do next. And then I had gone through, obviously, at this point, 
two presidential campaigns, a transition, a Senate. I mean, it was a it had been an exhausting eight years and I was ready to take a break. And I told him, uh, I'm not done serving, but I am done for a little bit. So when something comes along um, that seems interesting, let me know. And so I, I walked away from uh, what I thought was a dream job with an office in the West Wing with no sense of what I wanted to do, except for the sense of after a little bit of time off, I wanted to come back. And really, actually, after a couple months of being gone, um, I got a phone call from, again, Pete Rouse saying, hey, would you want to be the deputy secretary of labor? Pete had known I wanted to be a deputy secretary because it was a chance to kind of learn how agencies operate. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, you know, we're going to nominate Tom Perez to be the Secretary of Labor. I knew Tom a little bit. And and Pete said, why don't you go talk to Tom and see if you guys hit it off. And so we met for coffee. It was supposed to be a 20-minute coffee that stretched into an hour and a half. Um, Tom knew I, I knew nothing about labor issues. But what I did know was how the White House worked. I knew how the agencies worked. And we just kind of hit it off. And and so he, again, speaking of mentors and who have become friends, Tom took a chance on me. And um, and so I, you know, it just, again, then the personnel process takes a while to work out. But I basically knew about six months after I left that I would come back in as the deputy secretary of labor, but just needed to go through the confirmation process. Can you talk about uh, the role of deputy secretary, what you did, and what it was like to go from the White House, which, you know, that that complex has thousands of employees, a couple thousand, I think. Um, but the West Wing is a tiny space and a Senate office and a House committee are, you know, yeah. comparatively very small environments to the Department of Labor, which has 7,000 plus employees. Yeah, 17,000, actually. Oh, 17. And, 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 and the Department of Labor is even on the small side of federal agencies. But the deputy secretary role is to be the chief operating officer. So you are in charge of budgets and personnel and IT and the policy agenda. Your job is to keep trains running on time. You are the inside person while the secretary is the outside person who is traveling around and representing um, the agency. Um, and so for me, look, I have, I had no business running a 17,000 person agency with a $12 billion budget. And that's why I'm eternally grateful to Barack Obama and Tom Perez for giving me the chance to do that. But yeah, literally every day, it's like, how do you keep this place running? And again, 17,000 employees, about 100 political appointees. And so you're basically trying to move this, you know, ocean liner uh, and, and, and steer it a certain direction. So and all the while making sure that you, you know, you're not overspending your money, that the IT is running, you're not being hacked. Uh, you know, you're dealing with this, you know, employees all around the country. You're trying to perform the mission. I mean, it's a hard, hard job. Um, and it's very funny having been at the White House and issuing edict day after day after day and then being on the receiving end of all these edicts. <laughs> it actually was an important perspective. And I was very good at sort of... Uh, advising Tom, yeah, that's one we should follow. Yeah, we're not going to follow this one. Or, you know, we'll pay lip service to the White House in this one, but we'll kind of ignore them on this one. But it was also very helpful. Like when, as you know, Jim, trying to get anything through the White House, there's not like a playbook of things. You actually have to know who to go work with, 
um, who, who you have to clear things with and understanding the personalities and this kind of unwritten process of how things do, got done was incredibly useful uh, to me and I think to uh, Tom Perez during this. So you helped President Obama uh, leading his transition as executive director. You then served as cabinet secretary for four years during his first term. You served as deputy secretary of labor. We have a new Democratic president who asked you to lead one of his transition teams for the Department of Labor. Yeah. So all of that experience, what, you know, what did you... Um, look for and try to put in place for President Biden that you wish you'd had in place perhaps in 2008, 2009, or even when you were deputy secretary? Yeah, I will say hands down, um, this transition that the Biden team did was so much better than what we did in 2008. And and in 2008, our transition was considered the best in modern uh, modern presidential history. And, and part of the reason why the Biden transition is so much better is they had to do it under much more difficult circumstances. So I led the um, agency review team for the Department of Labor this time around in the 26, uh, 2020 uh, transition, never set foot in the Department of Labor, never met in person with any of the 30 people on my team. It was all done virtually. And it was all done in an environment in which um, we now know what this concept of ascertainment is, and that the, uh, officially the transition could not begin until about three weeks after um, the election was called. And so there were a lot of obstacles based on the pandemic, as well as through the lack of cooperation by the outgoing administration that handicapped the efforts. That being said, um, I think as you can see from what this new president has done, um, they've come out of the gates fast. And that's because of the great work that was done during the transition. Yeah. So um, I want to uh, return to that period of time uh, in between your federal service during the uh, Obama administration, but also because it relates uh, to some fellowships that you're doing now, too. Um, you have uh, an affiliation with the University of Virginia as well. Um, my question for you, since you are you know, you spend a lot of time and have over your career engaging with young people. What is the advice that you give young people who would, you know, chop off their left arm to have a career like yours? Well, I, as we can, as you can tell from the conversation we've had, first of all, um, find mentors. Um, I've been uh, lucky to have people like Phil Schlero, Pete Rouse, Tom Perez now, um, who have been f mentors who have become friends. Um, and it's funny because, um, you don't go and pick mentors. Um, it, it develops organically based on common interests, a sense of common trust. Um, I, I always tell people, I think, I'm not even sure if Phil Shalero and I have ever had a one-on-one -on -one sit down meal together. We probably have, but I can't even remember. Uh, Pete Rouse and I think have done it twice and it was, you know, that's it. Um, but, you know, I would do anything for these people and I'm fairly sure they would do anything for me. So find good mentors. Um, and I think, look, you should always be nice, period, but especially in politics, you should be nice because politics is the last you know, great meritocracy and literally people go from being in the mailroom to being the chief of staff. And so be nice, not just to the people above you, be nice to everyone below you um, because you never know where those people are going to end up. And then lastly, develop a good reputation. And it's not just, and it's especially with people across the aisle. You know, I 
I am a strong believer in when you make a commitment, you stick by the commitment, do your job with ethics and integrity, be a professional. And so even if people disagree with you from a policy or political perspective, they know that you are a responsible, respectable person. Um, so I have one last question for you uh, before we get to our recurring segments. Mm-hmm. Um, you are one of the highest ranking Asian Americans to serve in the U.S. government. And you were among the people that President Obama uh, took with him when he first visited China in 2009. You're the son of immigrants. And this is a tough time for Asian Americans in mm-hmm. uh, in our country right now. Um, scapegoating around COVID and um, adding to the kind of inflammatory conversation around it with things like China virus and Kung flu. The, the Asian American community is experiencing acts of violence and aggression in every state. My question for you is, one, can you talk a bit about the experience of Chinese Americans today that isn't being fully appreciated and discussed at the national level? And two, what should our elected leaders and perhaps their staff too be doing about it? Well, I'd say that the second one, words matter. And they especially matter when they come from the president of the United States. So when you've got a former president who gleefully uses those terms, uh, China virus or Kung flu, people emulate him. And the contrast is we have a new president and Joe Biden, who one of his first actions was signing a presidential memorandum asking agencies to consider anti-Asian bias in the way they in the way their programs operate or the way they communicate with the people. So, look, our public officials need to set an example. And 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 unfortunately, that has not happened over the last uh, couple of years. Um, I think, you know, Asian Americans, people need to understand the history of Asians in America is not a particularly positive um, uh, story. Uh, there's a wonderful PBS documentary. It's a multi-part documentary that came out called Asian Americans uh, last year. And literally, if you look at the last 150 years of Asians in America, it's a pretty grim story that begins from you know the Chinese railroad workers to the Chinese Exclusion Act to Japanese American internment to anti-Korean sentiment during the Korean War, anti-Japanese sentiment during the 1970s, and um, and so th- our community is one that um, often is viewed as the model minority, um, but we're not a monolithic community. Um, we have, you know, very high rates of people without health insurance, very high rates of poverty, very high rates of, um, uh, uh, of uh, people who are high school dropouts. And so government hasn't always recognized that. And you've seen this during the pandemic where um, Asian Americans have the highest rate of long-term unemployment of any racial group. That means they've been out of uh, work for over six months. 20% of Asian American small businesses have closed during the pandemics. Um, obviously, we have so many people on the front lines, doctors and nurses, who are being harassed by the patients that they're trying to serve. Again, not enough conversation has been focused on this right now. And as we as a country are engaging in this broader conversation about racial equity, which is much overdue, um, it needs to include um, uh, the challenges faced by Asian Americans right now. Yeah, well put. Um, your parents must be over the moon uh, 
proud of you and your accomplishments. Uh, I'll tell you one funny story. So again, I, I mean this with great love if my mother listens to this. When she first came to visit me in the, uh, in the White House, um, uh, she, she remarked on why my office was so small. <laughs> that's such a, that's such a uh, immigrant uh, parent experience. But she was very proud. Uh, and my father passed away before I uh, got to the White House, but he would have been very proud as well. Oh, undoubtedly. Um, okay. Now for some recurring segments. Um, first, in the vault, tell me a story about a time that you royally screwed up and what you learned from it. All right. I'm going to try to do this fast and tell you two stories. So again, Phil Shalero plays a role in all of this. Um, in 1997, um, Jimmy, you may remember this. Do you remember Hotline? Oh, of course. It was, okay, yes. so Hotline Chuck is Todd. Like the, yeah, Hotline is the precursor to Politico Playbook or every other morning sheet. But back in the day, we didn't really have the internet, so it was uh, basically facts to offices uh, every day, and it was a compendium of news stories and analysis. Um, what they used to have was this top ten list that was based on. David Letterman's top 10 list. And they would take, they're all of a political nature and you could submit top 10 lists. And so I had just started working as a staffer for Henry Waxman and sent one in that was based on the investigation that we were doing. I thought it was funny and it was sort of funny. Uh, Phil saw it, came to my office and he said, that was funny, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> and, and I understood why. Um, and this is, again, sort of the importance of being a staffer. Um, because it's, when you're a staffer, it's not about you. It's about your boss. And we as staffers are supposed to be nameless, faceless people. And again, it, it, the kind of thing I put out there was no worse than certainly what people tweet all day long or put on social media. Um, but I understood that I was creating a potential liability for the office. Um, and I understood that and, and Phil didn't have to threaten me in any way, but I understood that I had stepped out of line and I didn't do that again. And I understood what my role as a staffer. So it was a very valuable lesson. And sadly right now, I mean, look, it's, I was lucky to be a Hill staffer during a period of time when there wasn't social media. And I think now people really do have to resist the urge, understand whatever you put out there, not just reflects on you, but reflects on your boss as well. Um, the second story I will tell is when we tried to take, when I was in the White House, um, we were going to take our first cabinet photo um, with the president and the full cabinet. And this happened after a cabinet meeting. And we had told all of the cabinet, or I thought we had, that after the cabinet meeting ends, we're all going to retire to, you know, I think it was the East Room. We were going to all get set up and take the photo. Um, I had forgotten to tell the message to one of the cabinet members. Oh, no. So, um, you know, the president, the vice president, the whole cabinet go and they're set up. And we're looking at this, everyone's set up, and I realized, wait, we're missing somebody. And I could not figure out for the life of me who we were missing. And I realized, uh, oh, shoot, we're missing you know, this person um, because we had forgotten to tell that person. That person had left the White House complex, was heading back to their office. And you have the president, the vice president, uh, and they were pissed as much well look the president was not as pissed rom was pissed and so the president and vice president said were said look we're gonna go have lunch the rest of you sit here chris <laughs> get this cabinet member back here and uh yeah and rom was not happy and and it uh, uh i i and again it the moral of the story is um i 
whatever you again big task little task important mundane i double i triple check everything now um i i i make sure the details are all correct no matter what position i'm in in my career i always make sure i get the details correct and the funny part is that when we subsequently did cabinet photos I, I gave this message so many times. Okay, do not leave the complex. And then I made sure I had staff positioned at every door <laughs> so that you literally could not leave to get back in your car. Um, oh, those those seconds, those minutes must have felt like hours and days oh, before and, that and, person and, returned. And we have, um, yeah, and uh, the president, vice president sort of took it well. Rom did not take it well. <laughs> he was glaring at me. And the rest of the cabinet, like, is just sitting there waiting uh, <laughs> awkwardly waiting for the other person to get back. And we had to call that person's security detail. I, I don't know if we had to call DC government to flip all the lights to green to get that person to make a U-turn. And I think in the end, it was probably a 20-minute delay or so. But boy, that f- every minute was a painful. Oh. And you have the entire federal government yes. waiting to take a photo. <laughs> That's tremendous. Oh. Okay, last question for you. If I could build a building and put it on the National Mall and dedicate it to staffers, call it the Staffer Hall of Fame, who would be your nominee and why? Well, again, we have to go back to our common boss, Phil Shaliro, um, as well as uh, Pete Rouse. I mean, these are the consummate professionals um, who, um, you know, look, a lot of people um, distrust government in this country. A lot of people um, talk about bureaucrats or you know, all of us unelected staffers. But when you spend time with Pete uh, and Phil, you realize they represent the very best of public service. They do. And and Chris, that goes for you as well. One of Thank the you. blessings of working in the White House and, and on Capitol Hill, but in these jobs generally in politics and government is you get to cross paths with people who amaze you, impress you um, for their character and their brilliance. Um, and you're one of those people for me. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you gave us your time today. And thank you for, as a citizen, thank you for all of your service. Well, and Jim, let me say right back at you. It's a pleasure been getting to know you. Uh, and work with you for so many years. And thank you for doing this podcast and giving people the chance to hear about the stories of staffers and the important role that they play. It is truly a labor of love. So thank you. Thank you. Well, friends, the clocks just buzzed four times and the Marine Sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.